Welcome to Cooper Talk, presented by Walk My Mind. Bring your body, bring your mind. This is Walk My Mind, a holistic approach to wellness that connects the dots of physical, mental, and emotional health. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest, and we, we have a great show today. I, I hit up this gentleman on Twitter, and he was nice enough to get back to me. And so here we are, and this is my first time. I'm, I'm calling England, the UK, and I'm, I'm not used to this, and it's great because I'm now I'm feeling very mobile and a European and all across the continent. My guest is John Parr. How you doing, John? How you doing, Steve? Yes, you're definitely connected, man. I know it's great. I, it's so funny because you know Skype. And, you know, it's funny because you know some people Skype and some people don't. But Skype does a, a function where you can call anywhere in the in the in the world. And for a very small fee, you can talk, and it's great because sometimes you know I don't know what it costs to call England from America, but I'm sure it's not that cheap usually. No, Skype's a great thing. It's just where I am, and we don't. I'm I'm quite remote in Yorkshire, so we don't have good internet and and systems. Now, where did you grow up? I know. Well, I know you. It was fascinating. I know. I think you joined a. You started a band when you were 12, but where did you grow up in England? Did you grow up in Yorkshire, or what part are you from? Uh, I grew up in Sherwood Forest, near Sherwood Forest, Nottinghamshire, you know, land of Robin Hood. I was born about uh, five miles from the, the major oak tree. <laughs> okay, so, so now you sat there as a kid. At what age did you start getting into music, and what were your influences? Well, I started really young, Steve. I started probably seven, eight years old. Uh, you know, pop and rock were just beginning to happen, you know, and uh, the Beatles came and I wanted to get a guitar. My mum bought me a guitar and that was the beginning really for me. I wanted to be a guitar player and a singer and uh, like you say, eventually got a few school pals together and, and put a band together and started working. What was it like, I mean, in England? Because, you know, I'm I'm 52, and I when I was growing up, I was listening to the, you know, the Who and the Beatles and Zeppelin. But what was it like, like, being around when that music was really just starting to hit? I mean, it must have been a very exciting time, especially when you're young and when you love music. It was amazing times. It literally was like, uh, boy, boy, it was like lightning. It was, such, you know, I can remember... You know, the Beatles, you would, you would just be waiting for the next Beatles single because it was just groundbreaking. And like you say, you watched all these acts like Hendrix and The Who and Zeppelin. And, you know, they made your hair stand on end because there was nothing like it. This was the first, it was the first lap. Nobody was, nobody was copying it. It was the very first, first lap of it. Now, why did you choose guitar instead of, let's say the drums, or what, and did you always sing? I think the guitar just spoke to me, you know, it, it, uh, it seemed you could really express yourself, and again, the guitar was really changing, if you think, guitar in the 50s was all kind of clean, a bit jazzy, or, or whatever, a bit poppy, but suddenly in the, in the early 60s, it started to change, it started to get very expressive, very experimental, and it just grabbed me. Now, at 12, I mean, are you self-taught? Are you listening to the radio and playing songs? Or how are you learning at such, at such a young age? Uh, part of the deal with my parents to buy the guitar was that I went to guitar lessons. So I went to guitar lessons to a guy around the corner, and he was kind of uh, into 
Django Reinhardt and uh, much more, much more kind of formally based guitar. But he was a great teacher, and I, I, uh, I managed to stick that out for about a year, and then I was kind of on my own feet. Now you get these guys together, your schoolmates. It's so it's just as fascinating to me that you're twelve and you're in a band. And now you came up with the name The Silence. How did you come up with the name The Silence? I don't know. It just sounded a cool name, and you know we were kids. Uh, we used to watch The Monkeys was the big show on the TV on a Saturday night, and we used to watch The Monkeys. And literally, the the truck would pull up. My dad was driving. We'd load the gear into the into the truck. And we'd think we were the monkeys. We'd go off and do the gig. It was, it was like a dream, you know. Amazing times. Now, what kind of gigs were you playing? I'm just trying to think. You know, your guys are young. I mean, what gigs are you playing? And, and and at that point, when you just started playing as a band, did you know this would be your life calling? Um, well, the gigs were in England. We have a thing called working men's clubs, so the miners had their own clubs. The steel workers had their own clubs. And uh, they were they were bought and paid for by the unions, and you'd go play. And these guys and and the, the ladies, they just want to have a good time, you know. And uh, but the big thing is they wanted you to play stuff they knew, so you'd be playing covers of uh, of what was on the radio. Um, but yeah, it, it uh, was a really good grounding, and we'd work every weekend in those places. Now, when did you start thinking that you were going to write original music? Well, I was writing all along, even from, from very young. I was writing little ditties when I was... When I was learning guitar, I was, I was writing songs even then. And, um, you know, you, it's funny. You, you start writing at eight, nine years old, but you really... You write to what your outlet is. So I was writing songs to perform in the clubs. It's very different to writing songs to think you're going to, you know, make a record with it. So that came much later. But I was, I've always been writing, always been creative. Now, as you're younger, when do you start really branching it and saying, this can be my career? I mean, I know you're 12 and you start playing, or you're playing with bands. When do you feel like you have something that can be, you know, your career? Well, we were... Um, we were very dedicated. My dad was managing us then, and he was a real disciplinarian. So he trained us like a professional act. You know, he made us not tune up behind the curtains. The audience only first sound the audience heard was when the curtains opened and we were on. So it was very professional training. But when we were 19, my two pals, uh, they were apprentices in the, in the mines. And they were just coming up to qualifying as electricians. And we were 19 and um, we got a chance to turn professional and we literally jumped ship six months before they qualified and we turned professional. We just got this gig and uh, kind of never looked back. So you're in, you're in England. When, when are you starting to, are you starting, I read somewhere you started toward Europe or, or what, where was your focus going after you know you never look back well we toured only in england up until we were 19 and then when we turned professional that was in a place called guernsey which i'm sure most people in america have never heard of and this is in the channel islands this is between england and france and it's a group of islands that are english islands and we were there for six months playing there then we we came back played england and we started touring germany 
and uh, that was the grounding. Really, never went further afield than kind of Germany. What was it like when you were out in, you know, you've been playing in England since you were a kid. What was it like when you were starting to tour Europe and getting to see these different places? Were the musical tastes the same? And were you able to, you know, did you still have to play covers or were you playing your own music by then? Well, it was amazing, really, because, I mean, I had a, quite a sheltered upbringing. And even though I was 19, I used to have to be in at a certain time. And suddenly turning professional, we were three 19-year-old boys on the road, you know, kind of living the life. And it was all kinds of music. It was it was covers, but it was also a little bit of... A, you couldn't get away with a lot of original material because people, wherever you went, wanted to hear the classics stuff from the radio. So you were still kind of harnessed to... Uh, in the venues I was playing, you were still harnessed to playing covers. And the better the band, the better that you could copy those covers. Now, you're playing over there, and I know eventually you end up coming to America and working with Meatloaf. How did it all happen? How did, your, how did you get to America and become, an, um, you know, everyone knows your name? I mean, how did that happen? I mean, was it, were you, did you have a record deal in England or did you have to come to America to get a record deal? I was touring in England uh, with a band, a different band, uh, and punk had just come in and we were kind of a classic rock band and it kind of killed the industry a bit for me. And the truck simultaneously blew up, the band's truck. And it was 1979. I was just getting married. And my wife said, you know what? Why don't you just write songs? I'll pay the bills for a while. You just write songs. And so that's what happened for two or three years. And I got a little publishing deal with a company called Carlin in England. And they started pushing my demos around. And Meatloaf was the first one that picked the phone up and said, I like this. Will you come up to Newcastle in England and meet me? And I met Meatloaf and he said, I really love the stuff. And, I, and uh, within six months, he flew me over to America. I lived with him and his family and I was working on uh, his album. And um, that was the beginning. But simultaneously, the Who had split up in England. Keith Moon had died. And a guy that was with them looking after their business affairs uh, was looking for something new. And he went to the publishing company that I'd signed to and said, what should I be listening to? They gave him my tape and he called me and uh, he took my tapes to America, became my manager. So as I was working on the Meatloaf record simultaneously, he managed to get me a deal with Atlantic Records. So it kind of all happened like that. When you first started... When your wife was paying the bills and you were writing, did you miss performing? Because you had performed for a long time and live. Did you miss that or did you just say, this is what I have to do because I want to make a living in this? I just, I think my head just turned in that direction of writing. I built a record. My friend had a, a little money and he put the money up and we built a recording studio. So I was also getting my act together in the studio. So by the time... I went to Meatloaf in 83. I'd already had two years really hard labor in a recording studio and writing. So I was ready. I was really ready for it. I always knew I could play live. That was easy for me because I'd done it for 20 years. But, the, but, you know, I was really excited by writing and arranging and creating in the studio. Now, you got the deal. And do you already have all the 
songs ready for your album or did you have to work with it and was it weird because you're working with the producer now when before you've been working in a studio with your friend well i'd always been kind of producing myself and i felt fairly confident but atlantic records wanted to take an insurance policy and they brought in a guy called pete solly and uh, so we went to miami to record the record i'd already got the album but we used to warm up with this riff and in the rehearsals, we'd always warm up with this riff, and the riff was the Naughty Naughty riff. And over the rehearsal period, Naughty Naughty kind of came, it was born, it became the song. So that was the missing link. Pete Solly uh, kind of wrote Shotgun on it, but really, he didn't contribute. He, he, he kind of just let me have my head. So he kind of sat, he sat on my shoulder for, for the album, but kind of departed before it was finished. Uh, but I, everybody could see, except the record company, that Naughty Naughty was the record. But Atlantic wanted to go with the Meatloaf song, Magical. Now, how did it end up? How did it end up by and became Hicks? I know it reached number twenty-three on the charts and one on the rock charts. Well, I learned a lesson very quick, and that's you know, if you don't go with a record company's choice, the budget doesn't doesn't go behind the record. So there am I with my choice song that I really believed had the legs to, you know, to, to put me on the map in America. But Atlantic were just, uh, you know, they were not believing. And so they put a little money up and uh, they did a little campaign in Kansas. And uh, uh, we sold six copies of the record in Kansas in that week where I was on like a little radio station. And so they gradually, gradually would drip feed uh, camp the campaign. And that's why Naughty Naughty was so slow, but so long on the chart. It was, it started out in uh, late November 84, and I think ended up at its peak in, in May 85. And it kind of survived, um, you know, Christmas and all the big uh, bonuses and everything. And, and uh, eventually, rock radio picked it up, and, it, and that was the thing. It went number one everywhere. Now, when it went one on rock radio, when did you start getting to tour then to support the album? Did, did, in the beginning, did they send you out on a tour or did, did it really ramp up when you had a hit and they said, okay, this guy's going to be a good opening act because people will recognize him and the headliner? It was funny. It was in re Atlantic had never done this, but we persuaded them that even before we released the record, I did a promotion campaign did about 20 cities in America, even without a record, just meeting uh, radio, one-stops, you know, where they used to stock the vinyl to, to post out, met all the crews there for, for the label. So I'd met a lot of radio before I'd got a record deal. Then uh, when, when uh, we started to promote uh, and tour, uh, we had a lot of friends already out there, Toto asked me if I would come out with them on the road. They were coming out and playing like 10,000 seaters, baseball arenas and college stations and things. So that was the beginning for me. Started touring with Toto. And uh, it was really funny for me because I can remember a year, probably six months earlier listening to that Toto 4 album and just thinking, man, this band have just done everything I dream of doing. I'm never going to be able to compete. And within six months, I'm sharing the stage with them, and we became friends. It was amazing. It is amazing. Now, 
What was it like to you when you started playing those 10,000 seat venues? I mean, because you played, you know, the different places in, in overseas, but what was it like playing and then to an American audience and then even opening, you said, for Toto? I can't tell you. It was just like falling off a log. It was, it was so easy for me because the audience just welcomed me with open arms and, uh, I was back in the old routine. The stage was my home, really. So it was no, it was no big deal for me. I don't say that in a blase way. It was just very comfortable, and Toto was so magnanimous. They, they gave me the time for my sound check, and they gave me. They just gave me more than, I guess, they would normally. It was just fantastic. Now. How did you back then find out that you were moving up the charts? Because it's not like now where you can go on the internet. And I guess, did you have to look in Billboard magazine? Or how did you know And the different charts? Like when you hit number one on the rock charts, does someone call you and go, hey, man, you're number one? Or do you just find out? I mean, how does that work? It was things like that. It used to be, hey, they used to do these um, competitions. They'd have, they'd have these, you'd be up against Brian Adams. It'd be John Parr versus the Brian Adams single. And then you'd get a call say, hey, you know what? You just beat the Brian Adams record. You've gone number one in Nashville. You're number one in Nashville for six weeks. And it was like that, very slow build. And it was, it was nerve-wracking because you'd, you'd still be buzzing up and down the chart. You know, you'd be in and out of the Billboard Hot 100 and then, you know, just up and down. It was no... It was really nerve-wracking. It was like walking a tightrope. And just thought it was by the telephone. You know, people would just say, hey, you know, it's going well. You'd go to a town and the the record promotion guy would say, I want you to come meet this radio station. They've been playing the hell out of your record. It was really, you know, seat of your pants stuff. Now, how did the videos start playing in? And when did they start coming in for you? Well... MTV was the bit that was the beginning of my career also it was simultaneous everything was changing vinyl was just beginning to uh, be challenged by CD all in that same time and video came out that same time MTV uh, so I became very aware that uh, I had to put you know a visual stamp on what I was doing and insisted very early on that all my videos were shown on 35mm movie film and stood the, stood the cost of that with Atlantic. So they were very good. They were very expensive videos and shot on film. So it was like being in the movies, you know. What made you decide to do it on 35? But was that just, I mean, what in your mind made you to call it that way? Well, in those days, video really did look like video. It looked like you were looking through a window. There was no magic, you know. It looked like those soap operas that were shot you know, just on video with no treatment at all. And I've always been into kind of production values. I grew up dreaming of working in the movies. And so when I got this opportunity, I wanted to make sure that, you know, those movie cameras and those techs were there. Whatever it cost, I was willing to, you know, pay my end. Now, did you have a say in the actual video content or was that all from the record company? Yeah, I used to have some some input, and that input grew and grew as we did more of them. But, um, you know, in the early days, you know, obviously you're, you're learning your craft. I was just blessed that we, we got to work with some, some very experienced directors. Now, you're doing this, your album's doing well, and then St. Elmo's Fire comes along. How did, how did that happen? I know I believe you met um, David Foster. 
How did that come, how did it all come about? And then you originally wrote it for I mean, did you originally write it for the gentleman in the in the the I guess he's a Paralympic, the the wheelchair, or was that just something that you wrote in honor of him once you got told to write this song? Well, I'll cut the story short because I think you could write a book on it. But basically, David Foster loved, loved Naughty Naughty. He called me and said, I'm, I'm working on a movie. It's my first movie. I'm doing the score and I'm writing original songs for it. Do you want to come write a song with me? Literally went to this studio called The Lighthouse in Los Angeles, quite a modest studio, met David. He was burned. He, he was... You know, he was second-guessing himself, as successful as he was. He'd never done a movie, let alone do ten original tracks for the movie as well. And he wanted me to sing this song that was all already written. And I wasn't very good, to be honest. And I, I, Fortunately, I didn't know how big David Foster was at the time. And I just said to him, I think we can do better. Please, can we try and write something? And he said, no, man, I'm burned out. I can't do it. And I, I just kept pestering him. And he said, I'll give you an hour. And we went in the control room and literally with a drum machine and an electric piano, we started writing. We wrote a song, it was great, and he said, we can do better. We wrote another song, another half, and I said, we can do better. And the third song was set almost fire. This was within a couple of hours. We wrote the music and the melody, but no lyric. And I couldn't get, I couldn't get inspired by the subject of the movie. And he said to me, well, this has nothing to do with the movie, he said, but this young guy came in the studio last week. He's from Vancouver, where David Foster's from. He's wheeling the wheelchair around the world, trying to raise money for spinal research. He's got no money. It's just his buddy is driving this truck. They sleep in this truck, and he wheels 50 miles a day, and he reckons he's going to wheel around the world. And it's going to be called the Man in Motion Tour. And I saw this little 10-minute uh, like a TV bit, you know, done by a local TV station. And my hair stood on end. And I, I just said to David, I'm going to write the song for him. I went back to the hotel and I wrote the lyrics about him, what I thought he was going to achieve. And I had to make the, the lyric ambiguous. So the movie company thought that when I are talking about the pair of wheels, it was Demi Moore's Jeep. And when for once in his life, a man has his time, they think it's when Emilio Estevez gets the girl, but it's entirely about Rick Hansen. Wow! And the rest is history. That's amazing because you know it's so funny because at my age, you know, that was such a big movie for us because you know I mean I'm as I said I'm 52, my girlfriend's 50, and and that was such a movie because the Brat Pack was so big. And, yes. And you watched it, and it was it put the tone for the movie because to be honest, the movie was okay. But the song was great. Yeah. I mean, the song was great. So did you know once you heard that, that that would become such a hit? Or were you? did you know? And then in the back of your mind, you must have thought, wow, this isn't even for the movie. I. This is a very short time frame. Remember, I meet David on Friday. We write, we write it on the Friday. I've written the lyrics Friday night. Saturday, I come in. I sing the song. All the musicians come in and play. And Sunday... Uh, uh, I leave on the Saturday night when I finished my vocal I sang that vocal as if I was Rick Hansen in that chair wheeling up a mountainside and wheeling towards St. Elmo's fire glowing in the sky that's my dream that's what I'm doing when I'm singing it I sang the vocal I came I went to the restroom I fell to my knees and I thank God I knew I'd been given 
something very special. I knew it was spectacular. Uh, I take no credit for it. I think it was lightning in a bottle. I think we were just gifted it, whether you're religious or not. Something happened in that moment, and uh, we created something that uh, stood the test of time and raised, you know, a quarter of a billion dollars for spinal research. You know, it's it's just a wonderful thing to be associated with. Now, how long did that song started climbing the charts? Was it very quick, or what was the whole thing? And, and what were you thinking as it was climbing the charts? Were you thinking, you know, i got to work on a new album? What was going through your mind? Well, I, I went to, about a month later, I went to Los Angeles to mix the track with David Foster and Umberto Gattica. And in that week, we shot the video with the Brat Pack. Even then, I had no idea how big those kids were. I was from England. I'd got no idea. They were like the friends of their day, aren't they? Like that TV show. Yeah. I then come back to England, and it's like your earlier question. I'd got no idea what was happening. Uh, the video comes through. I see the video uh, in England, in my little house in England, and I get the shivers. About six weeks later, I'm in a hairdresser's, getting my hair permed. I used to have my hair with curlers then. Getting my hair permed. Phone rings. And it's Doug Morris, the boss of Atlantic Records. And he goes, I've been trying to track you down, man. You're number one. And that was it. I had I had curlers in my hair, plastic bag on my head, and like one of those black Macintoshes on. And I was number one in America. So how then what happens? Do they sit there and go, we got to get him out on tour? I mean, what happens to your music? Because you, and you had the hit Naughty Naughty. So it's basically, you're one of those people that people are going to go see you because you have, you know, two great songs. And they know your other songs are great. What happens with your career then? Did they put you on tour? Did they say you got to do another album? What happens from getting at number one? Well, we start straight away. There's a string of TV shows. So all the Dick Clarks, the Solid Golds, all those shows. I come back to America and I'm doing all these TV shows. And I'm always lip syncing, but I'm lip syncing with these same guys. Ricky Phillips, Pat Torpy, and Gary Brandon. Just these three guys. I got no idea. And the phone rings, we've just done Solid Gold, the phone rings, and it's Tina Turner's manager, Roger Davis. And he said, Tina's just heard San Almo's Fire, and she said, i got to have John on the road with me. Can you come and do the private dancer tour? And I rang my band who I'd done the tour with, uh, Toto with, and they were all busy. So I said to these guys that did the lip sync with me, can you guys play as good as you look? Because they were real pretty boys. And they said, come to the rehearsal studio tomorrow. I went to the rehearsal studio, and they were brilliant. I didn't know Ricky Phillips was in The Babies, and now he's playing for Sticks. Pat Torpy went on to play for, for Robert Plant, his super drummer, Mr. Big. But I had got no idea. They were fabulous, and within two weeks, we were on the private dancer tour with Tina. You know, and it, and it was, you know, 20, 25,000 seaters every night. Yeah, that must have been, I mean, amazing, because it's just for you, you must be thinking, I'm going from 10,000 to 25,000. It must just be a great time in your life, because you're like, wow, this is going, this is going, blowing up. It was like, it was like everything I ever dreamed was happening, you know, and I was becoming friends with these people as well, you know, these iconic people, you know, they were becoming friends, you know, Tina, you know, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't just go as far as saying we were friends, but we were certainly more than colleagues, you know, we, you know, we were together a long time, and we'd catch flights together, and we'd do shows together, it was, it was TV shows, it was, 
amazing times. And, uh, you know, I learned so much. I watched every show she did. I did 40 shows with her. I'd do my show. And when the lights went down for Tina, I went out and watched every show. And that was like learning at the knee of the master, you know. Now, what was it like to get put your next album out? Was there a pressure on you? Did you feel pressure? Or what was it like creating that? It was so disappointing because John Paul won the first album, was knee-deep in singles, I thought. And it was just after Naughty Naughty and, and St. Elmo's coming so fast, it just kind of, and of course St. Elmo's wasn't on that record. <clears throat> so uh, it was frustrating to think, here we've got a record that was geared to have five singles, but Atlantic just wanted a new record. And uh, I made I made big mistakes then. I, it took me, a, I built my own recording studio. I took my time making the record. And um, it was a record that Atlantic didn't want to hear. You know, it was much more wider than John Paul won. It was, you know, more eclectic and... and, and uh, it just didn't do the business, you know, and so it was like a, a very fast fall from grace, really. What is it like, though, when you sit there, you know, you have two songs that were hits, you know, because, and they're very different. And as you said, this album was a clock. Like, how do you how do you approach writing that album when, you know, and, and you know, sit there and have different eclectic songs, as you say? What is going through your mind when you're writing that? Are you thinking, you know what? I like this music and we'll see how it works or, you th or you're saying, you know, I wonder if the Atlantic will like this. I mean, what's going through your mind as a writer? Because every artist wants to grow and develop and it's something that you were playing for a long time. It's not like you were overnight success. You've been playing, you wrote, you know, what was it like when you're putting that album together? What were you, what were you aiming for to please yourself? What, what would you have wanted to come from that album? I wanted, to, I wanted it to be, the first album, I wanted it to be like a garage band, basically. But even on that album, there, before it was released, there were four other tracks that were much more me, if you like, much more like the album, second album. And Atlantic loved it, but they said, look, we're going to give you, we're going to double the budget, take these four songs off it, and do four more rock tracks, because we want to sharpen the point, want it to stick in the board. So that, that's why John Parham was very rocky. So when I got to make the second album, Running the Endless Mile, I, I thought it was a chance to spread my wings. And I thought there were some hit records on that album. Um, again, Atlantic picked the first single. I wouldn't have picked the first single they chose, but this time I thought I'm going to learn from my lesson and go with their choice. But it didn't happen. And um, it, simultaneously, I started to get a lot of calls from Hollywood and started to become a soundtrack writer specifically for Hollywood films, which Atlantic hated. And so I was in a catch-22 where I was writing for all these hit Hollywood movies that I couldn't get the records released from. Now, how did they find... Did they did they come courting you because St. Elmo's Fire was a hit and they knew you had basically magic in a bottle? How did the movie companies, the different movies, come and approach you and I know one of the movies was Quicksilver with Kevin Bacon but how did they come approach you well Quick, Quicksilver's an example of them just hearing a track and saying can we use this track in the film and uh, that was one we did Marilyn Martin it was a nice nice track and, and they used some of that for the score in the movie but I like to watch the movie and tell the story of the movie and usually got to write the theme and work with the director very closely 
So I got a reputation for that and, and you know, did about 12 Hollywood movies kind of back to back. Some biggies, as you say, Three Men and a Baby and Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, The, the Running Man. And those songs fitted the movie bang on. And uh, the movie company were delighted and were prepared to really put the gun down to promote. But Atlantic were just digging their heels in and saying, we don't want this, you know. And so I, I had the biggest movies in the world and, and couldn't get a single release. That's so weird. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, you think an Atlantic would want to sit there and want that because, you know, the, the thing what happens is, you know, people watch a movie and they hear a song. I mean, look at Survivor, you know, Eye of the Tiger. And then people yeah. want to hear other songs. San Elmo's Fire, everyone knew that song. Everyone knew the movie. It introduced people to your music that didn't know Naughty Naughty, but most people, we knew Naughty Naughty too. But it's just weird yeah. how record companies work where it's like you think they would say, man, this is massive exposure for this guy. Three men and a baby. Everybody's watching that. What you've got to realize is that Atlantic didn't like St. Elmo's Fire. It came right out of left field. And although it made them a ton of money, they saw me as their next Robert Plant. They saw me as the leather-clad rocker. And they hated St. Elmo's and actually didn't promote it. It was the film company, you know, my just the power of the Brat Pack and the movie. that I didn't do any promotion, radio promotion for that song at all. I'd go to a town with Tina Turner and all those radio stations that were friends of mine and because I'd gone out and met them before Naughty Naughty and during Naughty Naughty, I'd get to that town and there'd be no record exec to take me to that station. And it looked like I'd got big for my boots, but it was just that re the, the record company weren't promoting the record. It's now, a terrible situation. I know. So I mean, how do you deal with that as an artist? I mean, you got to sit there and go, they're making a ton of money off me. I, I know these people. Where's your mind at? Because it's like, I'm a success. I want to do the inner. I want to promote. What I mean, what was going through your mind and how do you deal with that? That's like being married to the most perfect woman in the world and she's leaving you. You know, it's like you're thinking, can't you see what we've got? Can't, can't you see the possibility? You know, and, uh, you know, Phil Collins, you know, we, same time, Phil was on the same label and Phil was kind of spreading his wings, being really diverse. And I was kind of, you know, not dissimilar. I was a rocker too, but being very diverse. But they wanted me to be Robert Plant. They, they saw me as Jimmy Page, Robert Plant. And, you know, uh, uh, that was just, you know, oil and water. It just didn't mix for them, you know. Did you not want to be that type of uh, performer? Or did you want to grow more? I mean, what was, why didn't you want to do that role as the next, you know, Jimmy uh, Page or Robert yeah. Plant? I, ju I just thought, um, I mean, I just think all those guys are incredible. I think, you know, what Robert Plant does, what Jimmy did, what all those people did were great. And and for me, my, I wasn't competing in that. I, I, I was broader than that, if you like. I, I, I'm not saying I was as good as what, what they did, but I was broader. My strength was my my wit, if you like, my, my area of of being able to shape what I did, you know. I can only liken it to Phil's career, you know, that Phil could do, you know, a song like Separate Lives or Against All Odds, but he could also do In the Air Tonight or Mama, you know, and get away with it. Whereas, you know, they, I thought that was my, I thought that was my, uh, my thing. It's heartbreaking. I made a huge error because I think 
you know, you can't do it in retrospect, but I think Atlantic would have backed me to the hill if I had been this kind of rocker. And they'd have never let me go, and they'd have supported me through hell and high water. You know, Atlantic, uh, uh, Ahmed Erdogan and I were, you know, we'd go out, we'd hang out. We, you know, it was more than a boss and a, an artist. You know, he really believed in me. And again, we were pals, but we did hang out together. There was a lot more to it than, it was an unusual relationship. Now, how did you end up writing for Roger Daltrey? Which, you know, for you, that must have been something that was uh, incredible for the fact that you listened to them when you were younger and they influenced you. I thought that The Who were probably the greatest visual band in the world. You didn't know where to look next. And I love the fact that, you know, you'd watch Pete, then you'd watch Keith, and then Roger, you know, and there was the ox there, just kind of like a monument. And the material matched it. It was just explosive and iconic. I'd been with this guy who was Keith's driver. My manager started out as Keith's driver. And he was with The Who right up until Keith died. So I've shared a million plane journeys with this guy. I know every Who story from the horse's mouth. So I was able to write a song as a tribute to Keith, almost with first-hand knowledge. And I knew that Roger was looking to further his uh, solo career. So I pitched Under a Raging Moon to him. And uh, he loved it. You know, he, he asked me to sing on the record back up with him. I even performed it with him at Madison Square Garden. We did it as a duet together. Um, he says it just captures the essence of uh, of what they were about. I was, and again, I was just blessed. It just came, and I was so inspired by them and inspired by Keith, particularly. You know, this enigma, this maverick. Um, I've always been drawn to these people. So to be able to kind of write a testament to him with my co-writer Julia Downs, you know, we, was weird because it was written on the piano as well. She was panning around the piano. You can't believe a song like that would be written on piano. Now, what is it like when you sat there and got to do a duet with Roger Daltrey? As you said, you thought they were the best visual band ever. I mean, what is it like when you sit there and you're you're this guy and you've had hits, but that's still Roger Daltrey? What goes through your mind? You sit there and think, okay, I got to nail this. Even though you wrote with him, you're at Madison Square Garden with Roger Daltrey. What goes, I mean, that's something that only a few of people in the world can say. I was at Roger, you know. I know. I was sitting with Roger. What goes through your mind then, and now what goes through your mind looking back at it? Well, two things. I mean, Madison Square Garden to a guy from the north of England. I mean, I used to watch Mohammed Ali fight on black and white television with my dad in England. So it's this iconic venue. That's the first thing. Then it's with Roger. I got to know Roger a little bit, but this particular night, Yo Coono's going to be there, Sean Lennon's there, um, Julian's there, a ton of people, and they're all going to get on stage with us. And that's what happened. So it was this like surreal thing. John Entwistle's playing bass. I can't remember if it was Jason Bonham or Zach Starkey playing drums. One of the two. So it's there, it's just this kind of eclipse. There's this guy that is, you know, I'm still little John from from England. I'm very confident because the stage is my home. And I never battered an eyelid walking the stage and trading off with Roger. 
but nonetheless I was very aware that this is like a unique situation for anybody and to have written the song and to be standing shoulder to shoulder with the guy singing you know it is just a blessing now you're you know you're writing the soundtracks and you're you're writing the music and now did you wrote you wrote something for Gillette right how did that come up was already written was a guy called um on his name <laughs> Jake Holmes a guy called Jake Holmes he wrote Dazed and Confused for for, uh, for Zeppelin and BBDO with the advertising company and they said we've got this uh, commercial that we want to stretch into uh, a, a full length song and Jake had got like 25 seconds and so we stretched it into uh, four minutes. So that was really the connection. And Jake, Jake loved it, and BBDO loved it, and uh, everything was going great. And then suddenly BBDO decided that they weren't going to let me sing the song. It was going to be a single. They weren't going to let me sing it because they they said we need somebody like Michael Bolton or Diana Ross to sing it, and it just went dead in the water. And so there you've got this biggest commercial still on TV now that never got the single release, which would have been like the Coke commercial, you remember, for the very, for the very first time. It would have been like that, you know, but an, another one of those where this time it was the advertising company that thought better of it. Now, I read, and I, you know, as I said, I do my research, some you never know, which some is true. Did you leave the music business for a while? Um, what happened was, um, I had a legal battle. I found out somebody in my organization had betrayed me and I found out quite late because my audit wasn't done for five years so I didn't find out until five years that I'd been betrayed. Took a legal battle out and unfortunately it took 18 years to win. So I couldn't work. When, you, when you're doing contracts there's a little box and it says are you in litigation? And if you tick that litigation box, nobody wants to sign you. So I couldn't get arrested. So I had to put my guitar in the box and kind of walk away from music. It was heartbreaking. And uh, I, I was away for 10 years, and the court case looked like it was never-ending. So in 2006, a buddy of mine said, would I do a concert, a local concert celebrating local music in my area? And so... Uh, that was the concert, the little comeback. It's the one that's on YouTube. It's called The Comeback. And it was just a one night. I did a one night. And that sparked my interest. But my legal battle went on for another five years. So that was why I disappeared totally. So, I mean, when you sit there, I mean, it must be so frustrating. What were you doing with your time? Were you still writing? Or, I mean, what do you do when this is what you know? This has been your life. I mean, what are you doing? How do you keep uh, it together? Um, I, I put the guitar in the box. We just got a young family. I became a full-time dad. That was my main job. And the, the positive out of this 18-year-old court, court battle was I got to not miss a day in my children's lives until they were men. So by the time they saw me ever again on stage, they were men. I'd just been dad for those 18 years. Um, they got into martial arts. I started uh, really taking an interest and became a martial arts instructor 
I trained my sons with, 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 their, with their instructor and, and they became world champions in the martial arts, eight times world champion, my eldest. I got, I'd always been passionate about dog breeding and we bred, my wife and I bred German shepherds and we won the Crufts Dog Show. I don't know if you know the Crufts, if you've heard of it. It's the world's most famous dog show. And we won Best German Shepherd. So, can't help myself. The, the pursuit of perfection still haunted me. So, in those 18 years, I tried to be super dad and, and you know, a martial artist and dog breeder. Now, when did the legal battle stop? Eventually, and when did you 2010. start? 2010. And then, okay. 2010, I won. Okay. I got it all back in 2010. So, but before that, you could still perform live. Were you perf you, I know you went to Canada and stuff like that to perform for like 20th anniversary. Yeah, but charity. Charity mainly. There was little interest in me because I didn't have a major record deal. Uh, so, and promoters, again, on the promotion contract, it says, are you in litigation? And if you say yes, you're a, you're, you're a pariah. You don't, get, you don't get it. So I was just doing little things. And now, once you win that suit, where's your mind at? Do you go, I, I mean, because you did, you got to see your sons. Now, is one of your sons an actor? Briefly. He was briefly an actor. He was in a, a soap on uh, on British television for a while. But he he decided, uh, he's much more entrepreneurial. He's, I'm just into the love of the art. He's He wants a nice house, a nice car, and a nice lifestyle, and felt that, you know, no matter how hard you try, sometimes you might not make it. So he 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 chose early on to become an entrepreneur, and he's doing well at it. But so he's different to me that way. So you, but you grow up. You know, you had the, you you saw your sons grow up, and they became successful. You did these other things. You know, the martial arts and the dogs. So when yeah. the, and you're doing well, and you're doing something. You're being productive, and you're succeeding. When that lawsuit ends, and you win, which is a vindication, you got to feel great. You know, it'd be awful if you spent all that time and lost. What is the first thing in your mind? Do you say, I want to get back and record again? or Yeah. What? Okay. Well, my wife, the first thing my wife said was, you know, you've won. Uh, I lost my recording studio in this court battle wrongly, but I'd lost it even though I'd paid for it. So she said, go out, buy a new one. So I invested very heavily, built a recording studio. If you go online somewhere in Yorkshire.com, you'll see the dream again and so build this kind of major studio that was the first thing I, I recorded a love letter to America America had always been my savior so I recorded an album a double album called Letter to America it was really a love letter to America and it celebrated the past a lot of those classic songs played live and played acoustically it was a double album so I did that but one thing I'd always wanted to do was when I came to America in 1985, I come out of a major war. It was called the Falklands War. And we lost a lot of men in that war, and a lot of men and women died. And when I came to America in 84, 85, I don't know if you, you remember that far back, but being in the military was not a positive thing. They were advised not to wear their uniforms in the street. I went to a Navy town touring, and on, on, in the park it said, no dogs on the grass or Navy. And America was not supportive of their military at that time, and it incensed me. I was a military brat, and I, I, I'd watched our country fight, and I couldn't believe. And so I wanted to do something to raise awareness of the plight of these young men and women that were putting it on the line for their country. And it, 
I got embroiled in my career and then the court case. So when I came back to America in 2011, I recorded an album called The Mission. And it was an album about what it was like to be the son of somebody in the military, what it was like to be the father of a daughter in the military, all military-based songs, but with a rock theme. So in the way that St. Elmo's Fire is about a guy in a wheelchair, you would never know. You would never know these were military songs unless you really listened. It was a contemporary record with all the proceeds going to the USO and USA Cares. I just wanted to do it because I felt it, uh, it was my duty to do it. So I came to America in 2011 and 12. I did 75,000 miles by road on my own dollar, put the fuel in myself, and just played benefits and hospitals and hoped that the mission would do that job. But of course, it w I was out of step. By this time, America loved the military. Flags were flying everywhere and it was on beer cans to support our troops. So I was kind of out of step, but nonetheless, my heart was in the right place. And that's great. I mean, you know, the military has changed, because I know over the years, you know, growing up here, it has changed a lot. My father was in, you know, World War II, D-Day, so at that time it was, you know, big, and then it dissipated. And, you know, as I said, when you said 84, 85 is when I was in college, and, yeah, we were like, when people were in the ROTC, we're like, what are you doing? You know, it's like, the military wasn't yeah. as popular, and it's great that you you that you remembered that you did that, and I'm sure that when you did those benefits, it meant a lot to these people because, you know, I know people have done USO shows too, and just like it means so much to people that you you're helping, you're just you're saying I notice, I recognize. I, I got more out of it than they did. I'm sure. Uh, I can't, I could never tell people the the rewards I got from meeting active troops, parents of troops, and in the way that uh, disabled people would say to me, how could you know our story? You captured our story in that song. How could an able-bodied know what we go through? And that's what troops and parents of troops would say to me. So the gift of that is far bigger than hit records and any revenue, you know, was just the greatest, uh, I can't say, it was just again a blessing. Now, i got to ask you, how did the ESPN Tim Tebow's fire come about? And did you ever think that would get so many YouTube views? Well, this is typically me again. In the way I didn't know the magnitude of David Foster or the magnitude of the Brat Pack, I got no idea who, who Tim Tebow was. I went up to ESPN uh, to pitch for a, uh, a TV show, to pitch some music. And uh, they said to me, look, we're going out live at five o'clock. Will you place an almost fire live on air? I went, sure. Five to five, they throw me a shirt. And they said, would you mind wearing this? And it says Tim Tebow on it. I don't know who he is. <laughs> I put the shirt on and I start playing. And as I'm playing, I can see the video screens running behind me. And I can see this Tebow, Tebow, Tebow. So then I just start fooling with it and start singing about being on ESPN and Tim Tebow's fire and all this stuff, just fooling around. And, of course, the, it caught fire, didn't it? You know, but it was not an intentional thing. <laughs> it went viral, like you said. <clears throat> but then I started doing research into Tim, and what an amazing story it was, and how he was a total maverick. And 
I'd never seen a quarterback. I didn't know that much about it, but a guy would run with the ball. He was just gung-ho. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, write, I'm going to rewrite it for him. And again, just give them, if it makes any money, give it to the Tim Tebow Foundation. So I didn't jump on a bandwagon. It was just, you know, I just, again, I just thought it was a cool thing to do, nice thing to do. Now, what are you up to now? I know you have some shows coming up. You're in some festivals. Um, are, you, are you getting back? Are you, are you writing new music constantly? Or where are you at now where, you know, you've had a great career and you, but you lost that time and you probably want to make that up and you probably have a lot more to say and the world's changed a lot. Where are you at now? I know you, when, you, when you perform live, it must be great because you see these fans that have known and they bring their, probably their kids and I mean, what's what? What does John Parr do now? Like, what is your daily? Do you get up and write and play, or what do you do? I get up and I practice, and I practice like a kid again. I practice just like I used to. I want to be better than I was. Impossible. I'm like Usain Bolt trying to run in nine point five, and when he's fifty, you know. But I'm I'm ambitious. I want to be stronger. I don't want to be one of these tired guys. I, w I don't want to go on that stage unless I can really do it. Um, so I'm playing live shows. Although I say it myself, I'm getting the reviews of my life. Uh, I'm halfway through a new record. Uh, Kenny Jones, who played for The Who and obviously was with Rod Stewart and Faces, he played drums on some of the tracks on this record. And a guy called Mark Singer played drums, uh, who was with the Righteous Brothers, an older guy, American guy. Um, I've got a I've got a lust for life, man. I'm I'm ready. This I wanna I wanna do it for me, but I still wanna do good. And the, and you need a platform to do good. So I'm I'm trying to climb up onto that platform again. Now, when you have these shows, you're playing some different festivals. Do you plan to come back to America at all? I'm dreaming of it. I'm dreaming of it. I'm I'm chomping a bit to be in America in 2018. That's my. That's my next thing. I want to come back and want to just, uh, I want to say, you know, you know, it's like I'm an older guy, but it's like in that film True Grit, you know, when, uh, when John Wayne's jumping over that five-bar gate and she says, hey, Mr. Coburn, you're too old to be jumping five-bar gates. And it freeze frames on him jumping the five-bar gate, you know, and he says, come see an old man sometime. Well, I ain't quite an old man, but I can jump that five-bar gate. Well, it's funny because there's so many tours now that they put, people from the 80s together I mean I mean they'd be crazy not to have you on one and, and what city would you want to play your what was your favorite city to play in America um, I always, I know it always was very uncool to say but I loved Pittsburgh I'd always loved Pittsburgh and in 85 when I used to say Pittsburgh people would go what you know I loved it I, I was born near Sheffield it's a steel town you know I'm from a very very working-class background People were very near to the ground. But I think, you know, I lived in Beaufort, uh, in, uh, in Beaufort and I lived in uh, Charlotte in 2011, 2012. Had a great time there. America is my second home, you know. I mean, they, they opened their arms to somebody like me. And I, I don't forget that stuff. Now, what is the, uh, the, the big festival you're doing in October? Have you done that before? Never. No, it's called a, it's called Rockingham Festival. I think it's a subsidiary of a thing called Firefest, where a lot of American bands would come over to Nottingham and play for three days in a festival. 
but they call it Rockfest now. And uh, it's a new venue. It's on the campus in Nottingham. So it's kind of ironic because I, I, I was born in Nottinghamshire, you know, Sherwood Forest is Nottingham. So it's kind of, uh, you know, full circle. It's a big deal for me. It's a band show. We're rehearsing the band now, you know, and uh, I'm ambitious for it. I've got a lot to prove. Now, how long a set will you play? And do you always... One hour. One hour. Now, is it... Do you... Because you have those two huge hits, do you have to open with one and encore with one? How do you figure out which is... What do you encore with when you do an encore? You have to do San Elmo's. You always do. But what you've got to remember is in England, uh, San Elmo's was a big record, but, uh, but Naughty Naughty was not. It was a minor hit. So very often, I'm, I'm used to playing shows for 40 minutes before they realize, oh yeah, I remember this guy. So I have to survive on stagecraft and being an entertainer. So um, I'm used to that. No, you know, Naughty Naughty will probably be about three or four in the set. San Elmo's will be at the end. But, um, you know, there's a lot of strong songs in that catalog that work well live. So... Even though you don't know them, unless you're a hard fan, they they work because they're an entertainment, you know. And do you sleep? Will you sleep? Uh, slip in some new stuff? Yeah, not too much. You know, I'm always well aware that people, you know, they want to hear what you do. They want to hear their favorites. Yeah, there'll be there'll be two songs off the new record in there. But you know, uh, you know, it's a privilege to play in front of an audience, and they do want to see what they love. And, you know, they they tolerate the new stuff bec- until it becomes a classic, hopefully. But I'm always mindful that, you know, play something we know, you know. Well, I got to ask you, we have to wrap up soon, but I got to ask you this. You know, back in, you know, in the 80s when I watched your videos, I had, you know, good hair and now I'm bald. And uh, how did you keep all your hair? And I've seen pictures of you now. How does it still look so good? I mean, was it the perm? Do you think it was the perm that made it look good after all these? I swear, your your hair still looks wonderful. How how did has did you ever worry? Did you ever worry that you might go bald? Because you know, in the eighties, we all used so much product. No, no, I was looking. My dad always had a good head of hair, so it always kind of stuck with me. I stopped perming it pretty quick because it was. Some days would be a good day, and St. Elmo's is a bad day. St. Elmo's is a good example of a bad hair day. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm just lucky, you know, it stayed. And, it, and you know, as well, it, it suits me, that style. I'm not one of these people that, you know, go with fashion. It's that kind of look, you know, although, it, you know, people say I'm mullet or whatever. It looks, it looks like me. If you come and see me, it doesn't look so different. And, you know... Uh, Hey, you know, I'm just me. That's awesome. Well, you know, I want to thank you for coming on. Now, your your Twitter that people he tweets back. He's very good with Twitter. Is at John Parr Music, and people Parr has two R's. And your website, I really like. It's uh, John John Parr dot net. Now, what yeah, ha- what happened there? Because I for my show, I'm Cooper Talk. Net. People go to coopertalk.net because somebody already had coopertalk.com. Did someone have johnparr.com? Way, way on, way early. Somebody was wise to just buying it up. I think mercenary. It's not used. It's just bought. You know, which is sad, really. It's not even being used. But you know, it doesn't. I think it no longer matters. I think people are so hip, and fortunately, John Parnett is so well visited that I'm lucky that if you put my name in now, it's the first thing that comes up anyway. But that's just from putting the miles in. You know, I, I still think 
Word of mouth is a big deal. We've been lucky with some recent movies that have brought me to the attention of young people, and they go to the site, you know. So I'm very mindful of uh, of, um, of, a, of, a, of a presence on net, you know, online, because all those songs that you thought were dead and buried, people discover it's like things in the attic. So it's a blessing to me, the internet. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, people. So please go follow at John Parr Music. Follow me at Cooper Talk. Go to johnparr.net. Go to coopertalk.net. You can send me an email at cooper at coopertalk.net. I'm Steve Cooper, and remember, don't forget, walk your mind. Bring your body, bring your mind. This is Walk My Mind. Have a wonderful day.